Full Steam with Jess Kelly. Brought to you by Work Human, the number one best workplace in Ireland. And we're hiring. Visit workhuman.com. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Full Steam, the series that profiles some of the most influential people from the world of tech, all of whom just happen to be women. Over the coming weeks, we'll hear from the Data Protection Commissioner and the MD of JustEat.ie. But my guest today is Katrina Hallahan, the MD of Microsoft Ireland. Growing up in Stillorgan, County Dublin, Hallahan illustrated her team player attitude from the outset of her career. This conversation explores how she fell into Microsoft, had a serious health battle in her early 30s and almost walked away from it all. But I started by asking her about her early childhood growing up in South Dublin. I grew up in a family, two older brothers, um, and I was, of course, the the baby and the only girl. So you can imagine a little bit uh, spoilt and looked after. Uh, Working class family. So my dad was a motor mechanic, uh, mother was a housewife. Um, she had come from a family of 15, so um, her mother had passed away when she was only 13. So my mum um, was taken out of school life to become the housekeeper at home and look after all her brothers and sisters. Um, and I tell you that because it has kind of a, a relevance to when I, as I got older. Uh-huh. Um, so a uh, really happy life, uh, very well looked after, uh, very well loved. Um, and then when I was 10, my dad had a brain hemorrhage and passed away quite suddenly. So uh, he was only 42, he's quite a young man. Um, He was the the kind of manager of my brother's football club and uh, we used to go on Sundays, load up the car. My older brother hated football, so he would never come with us. Um, But my dad, my mom, myself and my other brother used to go with carloads of guys. And uh, again, I would say I was a tomboy because I was always with boys. and go to the football match. And he, this particular Sunday, he drove two carloads of us, met myself, my mum in one of them, and my brother and his friends in another, up to the match. And he was writing out his, the list for the referee of the players, mm-hmm. and he collapsed and died instantly. Oh my God. So a huge shock for the family, huge shock for my mum. She was left with three children under 13 um, and no career. So for her, she had to think about, well, what do I do now? Um, and she went and started doing housework for other people because that was the only skill set that she had because she'd been the, the housekeeper at home. Um, and then over the years, she set up a small uh, cleaning business with her friend and went into industrial cleaning, cleaning schools and, and other things. So a little bit of an entrepreneurial spirit yeah. in her. And then also my dad had had his own business uh, as a mechanic. So he had that entrepreneurial feel as well. So I think happy life, but then a tragic life of, of having to grow up very quickly. And so did you feel the pressure or were you relied upon more if your mum was you know, trying to take, get her cleaning venture to take off, you had the two older brothers, did you feel the pressure to maybe grow up a bit quicker? Were you self-sufficient at a very young age because you were sort of maybe home alone? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, definitely may kind of feel the pressure or the responsibility of keeping the family together. Mm-hmm. Uh, became really, really close with my mum because of that, because uh, we shared a room together um, and as I was growing up, so would have been very supportive of her um, became the kind of stable voice in the house trying to control my brothers as well okay. <laughs> and keep them under control. Um, but we're very, very close. So um, 
all the way through our growing up and our married lives and we still every Saturday meet and uh, as a family and, and connect. So we grew together more, mm -hmm. but also there was that added responsibility to, to be sensible and not be that wild child. And so um, when you were in school, were you a very academic child? Because I know that your, your career sort of took you to, to finance and accounting and that sort of stuff. Were you very academically minded? Not really. I mean, um, I wouldn't say I loved school. Okay. Um, I always did reasonably well. Um, never failed an exam, but wouldn't have been number one in the class either. Mm -hmm. um, always had a very practical side to me. So I think that the analytics and the, the um, accounting and maths were something I just found very natural for me. Um, but when I came to the end of secondary school, my real motivation was I wanted to go and get a job to bring money into the house so that my mum could work less. Okay. Um, and, and so college was never on the cards. It wasn't something I even thought about. It was just, how do I get a job and how do I get working for faster? And did you care what kind of job or like, you know, were you ever looking at what's my career going to be or was it just, I need to bring money home? I think at that time, not career. It was about, you know, how do I contribute to the family and have and help my mom? It wasn't, uh, I want to have a high flying career in business. Mm -hmm. um, so when I left secondary school, I did a sectarial course and from there went into working with a, a family run business in Blackrock. So and so what was your gig there? What did you... So do? I started out, um, they, they were a fast food equipment company. So they sold deep fat fryers and fridges to restaurants. Um, and I started setting up their accounting system. So they were computerizing for the first time. They had got an accounting package. So I had to set up all of their accounts payable and accounts receivable. Um, and my job actually was quite funny, ranged from doing that kind of office setup uh, administration mm -hmm. to collecting the kids from school because it was a family and the, okay. the office was in their house. So if they were stuck, they would say, would you pop down and get the kids from school? to on Saturdays, they had the franchise for Southern Fried Chicken. So all the seasonings that uh, Super Quinn used to buy to put on the, the Southern Fried Chicken uh, in their stores. So I used to go out on the road and deliver that to uh, Super Quinn on Saturdays. So I, I mean, one of the good things I reflect back on that is I had an opportunity to learn so much about different aspects of the business. Yeah. Um, and then they opened their own fast food restaurant in Dundrum. So I hired the staff for that. I did the payroll for that. I used to go down at the uh, at lunchtime and flip burgers in the restaurant. Um, I did the cash up for it. So um, any job that needed doing, you were there. I was able to do. So from for the first kind of three years of my career, I got an opportunity to do everything, um, and that mentality has kind of stayed with me as I've gone through my career. As there's no job that's not valuable. There's nothing that say, you wouldn't so do. So you didn't have notions about yourself thinking, oh, well, I'm doing payroll now, so I'm too good to be doing the burgers. Oh, no, time. no. For me, it was just uh, how do I learn more? So that kind of growth mindset that Microsoft talks about now, yeah. I, I realized that I had that in my DNA of uh, try new experiences, do new things, uh, learn different aspects of the business. And given that you were doing nine to five different jobs, was there one in particular that you enjoyed or you looked forward to doing more than the others? I think the, the whole accounting side of things and the financial uh, pieces uh, were interesting, dealing with customers. Because when I was, before I took that job, my very first job was in a news agents when I was 16 uh, in a local shop down in Stillorgan near the bowling alley. And I went in there to, um, 
to earn money because I used to bowl, do tempon bowling. I was okay. on the, the European youth team for Ireland way, way back. Um, so I, I loved interacting with customers. I loved the kind of financial aspects, stock management. So all of that kind of accounting side of things, mm -hmm. even though I wouldn't have known it then as being, hey, I want to be an accountant, um, came very naturally to me. And I think as I went through into my first real job in, in business, they were the aspects that I enjoyed most. And so this is probably my favorite anecdote of every person I've ever interviewed. <laughs> uh, how did you come to work at Microsoft? Um, so the company I was in, as I said, the motivation for me getting a job was to bring money home. Uh -huh. um, the family business in the mid 80s got into trouble financially um, and they hadn't paid me for about two months because they couldn't afford to pay me. And I thought, OK, I, my motivation for working is to try and get money for home. So I need to think about what next, mm -hmm. because everybody in that business would have said I'd never leave. They thought, you know, you get on so well with the family, you're connected with their kids, you're here for life. But you also need to look after your own uh, sense of why you're there and what, you're, what you want next. Mm -hmm. So I applied for a job in the Evening Herald um, and got an interview with Mary B. Kremen for a business in Sandyford. And I picked Sandyford because it was close to home. Um, and it was a startup, uh, in effect, a manufacturing company that had aimed to put 100 people in Ireland. Mm -hmm. um, and turned out that the company was Microsoft. And at the time, I didn't know who they were, yeah. um, as I don't think anybody in Ireland did. And I was employee number 24, and I went in as an accounts clerk. And again, part of one of my early jobs was to go and buy the biscuits for the tea because we didn't have a, a canteen or anything there, just a, a kettle and a desk. Like That's a very cool story. So this was 1986. Yep. And employee number 24 in a company that has gone on to dominate the entire world. <laughs> uh, so you went in at, as you said, employee 24. Um, were you aware that this could be a career or was it still just bringing money home? Um, no, it was a, a, a really fun place to work because back then most of the employees were in their like 21 or below. Okay. It was a manufacturing facility, so we had a lot of people on production line who were teenagers coming out of school, first job, uh, very energetic company. Um, everything was new because we were a startup. We were trying to figure out how to build that business. Um, so I started in the finance side of things as an accounts clerk. Um, but again, I got to do payroll, I got to do accounts payable, all the different aspects of accounting. Um, and I still didn't get that it was going to be a career. It was mm -hmm. a company that I enjoyed working for. It was a lot of fun. Um, but I had a, my first manager in Microsoft who was a real inspiration. Uh, and for me, I now realize he was an amazing coach, which I didn't again understand the term back then. Yeah. Um, but he saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. Um, and he sat me down and said, you need to go and get a qualification. Um, you should think about going and doing accountancy. And I was saying to him, oh, five years, like long college track, I'm not sure that's for me. Mm -hmm. And he said, hey, there's a new pro course that's come out. It's an accounting technician course, it's two years. Um, just focus on the, trying to do that for two years and let's see how you go. So I signed up to the course. I came 11th in Ireland in both of my exams in both years, right. um, which I was quite shocked at. But the, again, I was working in a finance department, so all of the, um, whether it was the law side of things, which really interested me, or, or the business side, seemed to fit with what I was doing, and it made sense to me. So, so you're pra you had practical examples for the theory the, that you were learning? Yeah. 
And then he, after I got my exams in year two and qualified, he sat me down and said, okay, now you need to think about the next phase, which is going and doing your accountancy exams. Um, and was that to try and, for, for your betterment, like could you have stayed at the level you were at doing what you were doing until the day you die? Was this because, as you say, he saw something in you and he wanted you to achieve the full potential? Yeah, I think he saw that there was potential there and that I wasn't really reaching that. And okay. he wanted to encourage me and say, hey, listen, as companies scale and grow and as you build your career, having some um, qualification that will stand to you in the future is something that you should think about. Okay. So went on and did the accountancy exams, did them in three years, so very quick um, period of time. Was in college with people who were getting three and six months off for their finals and I got three days off for mine um, and I passed and they didn't. So it was again, the, I think the practical application of what I was learning, I was doing. So it made a lot of sense to me. But were you um, stressed out of your bin though? Like was that like, no. pretty intense? No? No. I, I, and I didn't, and again back to this thing of liking to be busy and doing lots of things. Okay. Like I was in college four nights a week every weekend on top of working and on top of going out with friends and, and doing all the things you do when you're in your early 20s. So, wow. um, but I enjoyed it and I, I really found, uh, I thrived on that, that learning. Okay, um, so, so you, you got those exams, you did that in three years. Did you then move up in the company? Like, was your qualifications, was it sort of acknowledged within the company and you got to move up? Yeah, so I started as accounts clerk and then I went into cost accounting and then I went into finance supervisor. There was a phase in that where the finance supervisor job came up and I wanted to go for it and they were saying, oh no, we're really happy with you doing the cost accounting job. You're really good at it. Okay. And I kind of had a, a, a discussion with my manager at the time saying, well, you know, if I left, the company you'd mm. have to find somebody to replace me why why wouldn't you give me the opportunity to stay in the company and do something and progress my career here yeah um, so I had to put a little bit of pressure on to be considered and I, I got the role but I moved up over the first kind of 10 years of my career in Microsoft through the finance up to to leading the finance organization and were you you must have been confident in your ability to, to put yourself forward because we often hear that you know women aren't great at that you know putting the pressure on and saying I can do this I know I can do this. I don't think I was confident I think um, I got to a point of frustration that kind of okay. you know I, I saw other people moving and Microsoft was growing uh, 100, 200, 300 people year on year at the time so we were expanding uh, really well and I felt I was doing a really good job mm -hmm. um, and sometimes when you do a really good job, people are comfortable with you doing a really good job. So yeah. you, you have to ask the question around, well, or show a little bit of ambition. So I think um, that was my first kind of putting a little, pushing the system a little to say, hey, listen, what about me? Mm -hmm. um, so I wouldn't necessarily say I was confident because shortly after that, I got a coach who started working with me on my development. Uh, the company had supported doing that. Um, and I don't, he would have said that I was very low on the self-confidence and uh, pushing myself scale. Mm -hmm. um, but I saw the opportunity and I thought, why, why everybody else and why not me? And so as you got more senior, what kind of a leader were you? you know, did that come naturally to you when you had people answering to you? I think um, for me, it's back to valuing all the, the jobs. And I think that comes back to my mother, you know, being a cleaner or being, you know, doing the industrial cleaning. A lot of people would look down their nose at that kind of work and mm -hmm. say, oh, that's, you know, that's not um, 
a career. Whereas I think the values that I have in my leadership came from that grounding of being in a working class family, being prepared myself to do any job. Like in those early days in Microsoft, I worked on the production line at Christmas when we had product to get out. I uh, did relief at reception for people for lunch breaks. So again, that ethos of try everything, learn everything, and, and no job is too beneath you. Mm -hmm. um, was part of the value system I had and that's what I brought into the leadership. I was prepared at month end when everybody was under pressure to get work done to go out with my team, sit down and do the work with them because I'd done all of the jobs over the, the 10 years. Yeah. So um, rolling up your sleeves, getting involved, uh, connecting with people and, and uh, supporting them was kind of my early uh, ethos in, in managing teams. So that was a lot that happened in a 10 year period. Um, you also then had, I think the most uh, slight way I can put it is a health wobble Yes. when you were incredibly young. Yeah. Um, what age were you? I was 32 at the time um, and I was in, I'd moved on to operations and I was doing a global role at the time and was traveling a huge amount um, and had started a fitness regime and thought I, I need to exercise more and go to the gym and started lifting weights and all sorts of uh, things and I was in the shower one morning and found a lump and uh, said it to my husband and, he, and I, at the time I had a two-year-old child so my daughter was just a small toddler so there was a lot going on in life um, and he was saying to me listen you probably pulled a muscle mm -hmm. you know doing in the gym so just keep an eye on it don't don't get overly panicked um, but after a couple of days I was going okay this isn't going away and it just doesn't feel kind of right so I went to my GP um, they sent me immediately, he was amaz amazing, um, sent me immediately down to Vincent's, uh, had a uh, scan, mammogram, whatever, and within 10 days had been told I had breast cancer and that they were going to take me in and, and do surgery. So when you hear the word cancer and you have a two-year-old kid at home and you're only 32 yourself? Yeah, a bit scary. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also kind of my mentality is always glass half full so um and once you know something you can do something about it so it's a, again a very practical yeah. way of approaching everything so i approached that the same way i had a, as i said a great gp he was so funny because he was trying to get me into to a hospital to get the surgery done and he was saying to me listen i have a brother who's a surgeon who'll just take it out if we have to it was like a mechanic yeah. that, down the road who'll go and just do get it out to get to at least get to that point yeah and um, so as i said within 10 days i was in and i don't think at the time when I went in for the surgery, I'd never been in hospital before in my life. I'd never had any uh, anything wrong. So I don't think it hit me mm. until I was lying in the hospital bed the night before surgery and the priest came round to, to bless me. And I kind of thought, oh my God. Um, yeah. The realization hit me of this is actually something fairly serious um, and maybe I won't come out of this. Um, but then I did the surgery, started chemotherapy, um, and did radiotherapy so I had about 10 months of treatment lost the hair all of the drama of all the things that happened with uh, that but again approached it my family would say they would never have got through it unless I had been so positive which was this is just something I have to get done okay. um, we will go through the process we'll take the advice of the experts we'll do whatever treatment they tell you to do and it'll be okay was the prognosis good from the outset like did you know that it was something was it as survivable as it is today? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, 
I, although when I went in to do the chemotherapy, I was meeting amazing women who were in their 50s, who had done the screening through the health check. Mm. Um, and by the time they had been diagnosed, they had secondaries and they were not in a great place. So mm. I felt lucky that I had found it so early. Um, and I would be a firm believer that we should be doing mammograms and screening much younger in, in women mm -hmm. because I think things are happening younger and, and we need to be prevent prevention's better than cure. So the, the more we can do that preventative mm -hmm. uh, work, the better. Um, so I, I've, then I spent 10 years of going in for scans and you know every six months doing the checkups, going to the oncologist. Um, and every year you go in with the terrified uh, uh, feeling that they're going to tell you that it's back. Mm -hmm. um, and then at the end of the 10 years, they asked me to go and do the gene test. Okay, um, yeah. And it was unusual because I didn't have the, a, there's 50 different types of breast cancer. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that at the time. Um, I had gone through a phase early on of, oh, I'll give up everything, all dairy, all meat products, every, to, to go on a strict diet. And then I thought my life will be really short if I can't do anything that I enjoy. So mm -hmm. um, took a more practical approach to saying, OK, let's try and get safe, reasonably healthy, eat healthy uh, exercise. Um, but you always have that fear of it will return. And after 10 years, my oncologist said, hey, listen, we've done a lot more research now into breast cancer. And I w I'm going to send you, even though we have no history in your family, my mum hadn't had a, she had a lot of brothers. My dad had 15 brothers. Wow. So there was no women in the family as such. Okay. To see was there a history of breast cancer in the family. But there, I had no history of anybody dying of breast cancer. Had lots of uh, family members died of heart attacks. Um, so they, he said, I'm going to send you for this gene test, but I don't expect anything. Um, so again, I went into the gene test on my own. Did, they had the counselling session, got the bloods done, and then went back to collect the results on my own, not believing there would be anything wrong, and then was told that I had the BRCA1 gene, which was like another big shock to the system. Um, so you have two risks with that, one ovarian cancer and two breast cancer uh, repeat. And if, the, if you get re a repeat breast cancer, which there's an 80% chance that I would, yeah. um, the likelihood of them being able to uh, your, you recover from that or me recover from that would be lower than it was first time around. Um, so two years ago I had um, the preventative surgery so I had double mastectomy done two years ago and I'd had ovarian surgery about five years ago so yeah it's been a, a trek. So before you went and had the gene test because this is something I used to work on the Tom Dunn show and I remember we had it was around the time of Angelina Jolie she's the person yes. who kind of brought this gene test to the Daily Mail and suddenly we were all talking about it mm -hmm. but did you ever have like an ounce of I don't want to know about it no because I actually never believed I'd actually have the gene okay so, so I went off, into it with that uh, there's nobody in my family with a history okay this gene thing it would have shown up somewhere in the family yeah Um. so let's just go in and get done and rule that out it's another thing to to be checked on Um. but never believed that it would come back positive wow yeah. and that must have been then another ton of bricks just landing on top what what age were you then at that stage 42, I don't remember now, 42, 45. In and then obviously your daughter would have been growing up alongside yes. you yes. as well. So yeah, that's so that, that's the first thing that you kind of think about is, okay, what about her and what's the implications for her? Um, and again, the oncologist at the time was great to say, hey, listen, we're progressing research so rapidly in this area. 
by the time she has any need to worry about this, who knows what the, the treatment or the prevention will be. You mm. can't take it with your lens because the research is so phenomenal. Um, so she's now 19. She can be tested from now, but they actually wouldn't do any preventative screening or anything until she's 30. Okay. So she's lots of time to, to consider whether she needs to be tested or not. And there is, of course, a 50-50 chance that she won't have it mm -hmm. um, because my husband's genes could be stronger. Um, my two brothers have daughters as well. So again, it's had an implication on them. They've, they've only just gone now and had the test done, which is uh, they waited a long time. And it's only because their daughters are now getting to being 18, 19, and their daughters are putting pressure on them to say, well, before I have to go get tested, why don't you to let me know whether you're a carrier of the gene? Because they don't need to be tested if their, heart, their fathers don't have the gene. Yeah, the, like, the stuff that they can do now and the tests they can do are incredible. They are, yeah. But the implications of those results are quite are significant. Yeah. yeah, they are. And so was there ever any wobble in your brain as to whether or not you were going to get the surgeries done or was it just, uh, let's be practical yeah. about this again? On the ovarian surgery, I did it straight away because I had gone into menopause as part of the chemotherapy. So from they were just mm -hmm. extra bits in the body that you could get rid of and there was no decision to be made. Yeah. Um, for the uh, double mastectomy, I didn't make the decision for a couple of years. I actually upped the screening every six months and went uh, and met the plastic surgeon and talked about the surgery and the options of what type to do because there's different options people have um, and took a bit of time to consider that. And then it was like, I can keep going through the screening every six months and always have that fear that mm -hmm. it, if it comes back, do you catch it early yeah. enough to do something about it? Or do you just say, hey, listen, this is something that you need to, to do. And again, it, my practical brain was, why sit and be worrying and wasting your life worrying about it when you can just do something about it and move on? So that's the approach I took. And so, as I say, you went through the surgery. So what's the status now? Are you... Yeah, fully... Um, like I, I don't have to go back for screening all the time. I'll go and touch base with my surgeon rather I'm, I'm signed off from the oncologist. Okay. Um, so it's more now about normal life um, checkups. So funnily, I was going to, due to go on a trip with Concern to Nairobi in January, and I had to get blood tests done as part of that. And I went to the GP and they said, you haven't had blood tests done other than my cancer bloods uh, with the hospital since 1994 when you had yeah. a rubella check so they said what do you think and I said do the whole lot yeah. you know cholesterol uh, everything full MOT kind um, of thing yeah. yeah so I had a slight glitch in liver function that found came up as part of that okay so we did a series of tests in case there was something sinister about it but there wasn't there in fact the liver specialist said I have a better liver than he has um, and that it was just uh, because I'd never had the bloods done before. Some people have high and low functioning liver and they might never know if they never had a blood test. Wow. So, um, so everything is perfectly fine, all healthy. This is a health journey then that started for you with 32. Yeah. But at 32, you're in one position. Now you're the MD yeah. of Microsoft, <laughs> having gone through all of that. Yeah. Did you ever think, I'm going to take my foot off the gas in terms of career and just focus on my health and my child? Well, interesting, when, when I got the cancer diagnosis first, um, it was an interesting time in Microsoft because the um, managing director of the operations center, which is where I was working, um, was leaving okay. and, and leaving Microsoft. And he was being replaced by a gentleman from the US. 
Um, so for me, it's a really funny time in your life because you've got this diagnosis, you have a boss that you've never met before, you're ambitious in your career and want to do well. So um, it was a, a, a difficult time in that transition. So I went and spoke to the new boss I went, just after I'd been diagnosed and said, hey, listen, I'm going to have to go through treatment. I'm going to have to take time out to do that. But I'd like to continue working mm -hmm. because I could do projects. I may not be here able to be in every day, but I don't know how the treatment's going to affect me. Yeah. And he um, w I, was interesting. His approach was, if you're not here 150% of the time, I don't want you here at all, which oh, I wow. thought was a very uh, shocking response to somebody yeah. going through a, a significant life-changing incident. Um, so he didn't want me in the office and basically said, stay off till you're healthy. Jeez. Now, you could look at that and say he was being empathetic and saying stay for you your know, well-being for your well-being yeah. get well don't be worrying about work just go and do what you need to do to get well and then come back and talk to us yeah. but for me on the receiving side of it was you're totally cut off from this uh, part of your life that you had been doing for years and being really busy and really successful in mm. uh, into this unknown health scare but also an unknown work environment so when I went back after that I really did think about um whether this was Microsoft was the place for me and whether I should think about yeah. doing something different. And I didn't really know whether I was going to be better or not. Um, so there's that uncertainty of, well, what's life like after cancer and how are you going to cope with that? So I, um, I went back and silly, strangely, I took a global job. Okay, so you didn't first take your foot job. off the gas. Okay. Didn't take a foot off the gas. Took on a global job because I think I wanted to prove to him and to me me more than anything that I was better and okay. that I could do something as big as I had done before and and still have impact so I took on the global role but I also took on decided to go into a coaching path um, to build some skills that if I did decide that I couldn't work at the pace I used to work that I would have an alternative tool in my toolkit okay. so I did psychometric testing and qualified oh. for that occupational te testing to see how teams work um, and then I qualified as an executive coach set up my own business because um, it's part of the coaching qualification you had to do that uh, started doing some coaching outside of Microsoft because you need to look at other industries and as part of your qualification know that you can coach in other environments mm -hmm. um, so did all of that while I was working in this global role um, and uh, really enjoyed it I love coaching it's part of my kind of leadership and DNA now and actually the company is shifting a huge amount of its focus into a coaching culture which has been amazing to see that coming through yeah I actually was in the I was I went to the Redmond uh, campus so the Microsoft HQ in the US I was there a little while ago and it was very interesting to hear long-term employees of Microsoft say that the culture of the company has shifted dramatically. Oh yeah. But only in the last maybe... Four years. Yeah. Since Satya Nadella took over. Yeah. But that's yeah. so interesting to hear but also to hear them saying it so openly as well because people like yourself have been there such a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But for you to acknowledge and own the fact that the culture wasn't maybe ideal for a long period of time is quite interesting. I think it's it's paralleled with the shift in the industry and, and uh, you know, we're living in this mobile cloud world where everyone is on and, and the explosion of data um, means we've changed from a company who was all about product innovation um, 
into a company that's a services company mm -hmm. um, and that requires a very different culture and a very different type of leadership so Satya coming in has really focused on what do we need to be successful in this you know always on services world um, and he's put a lot of time into the culture transformation for the company um, really building out this growth mindset around always learning being open-minded listening to our customers being customer obsessed rather than just product and innovation obsessed mm -hmm. um, focusing on diversity and inclusion because you know if you can't build services for your customers if you can't represent your customers so building that culture and that shift has been just an amazing thing to be on the journey and part of that and helping shape that and so when did you go from your global role and the coaching to where you are today like how long of a period are we talking about and what were the steps so i think i did the the global role and then i got asked to go in and do a turnaround we are we had acquired uh, great plains exapton navision the kind of dynamics business the erp and crm parts of, of our company um, and po product portfolio we had acquired that and integrated into operations and the whole thing fell apart it was an absolute disaster um, so I got asked to go and turn the business around in Europe and then take on the global team. Um, yeah. So that was a fascinating kind of four years after me coming back to, I spent a year doing my, this global role and then I got asked to take on this turnaround business, which was a phenomenal experience. Um, did that role for four years and then I went in and ran the operations centre in EMEA and I had two global teams as well. So I had a bigger footprint, about six, seven hundred people. Um, working in Japan, Singapore. Uh, and did that not Argo. ever go through your brain of, holy Jesus, I'm just back from having, <laughs> you know, a serious health issue and now I'm taking on so much responsibility, working with people in pretty much every time zone. No. I need to watch myself. No, I think I just kind of put it into the moving on, like it was a period of about eight years of just building my career again, building my reputation. I mean, it, there was so many learnings for me as a leader and, and for people um, generally that I share in that period. The cancer bit was a, a part of that. The learning of, you know, when the, my new boss that I went back to, um, I had to rebuild a relationship, I had to prove myself from scratch again. He didn't know me from Adam. He hadn't seen my first 15 years in Microsoft and the trajectory I'd had. So I was starting again with mm -hmm. him. And when it came to his time to move back to Seattle, um, the job, the operations, head of operations job was given to a peer of mine. Um, and not me and mm -hmm. I was quite shocked at that because I'd been the longest tenured person I'd bring a proven track record so I sat down with him and said like why didn't I get the job or why didn't I even get interviewed for the job yeah and he said you never asked and it was a real learning for me um, of you know I expected if I worked really hard because my history in Microsoft had been work really hard prove yourself and then somebody sees that and promotes you to the next yeah. level. I never had a proactive career plan that I was going, okay, I want to go to this job next and this job next. I just fell in for the first kind of 15 years of my career, just fell role after role after role and got more and more opportunity. Yeah. So this was the first time where I just got the shock of, I didn't get the job. Um, and then realizing, well, I hadn't actually asked for the job. And actually this guy that was my peer had been really articulate on that's the job I want, here's what I'm going to do to get it, and had been working towards that and mm -hmm. I was oblivious to it. Um, 
So that was a big shift and change for me. Um, and so I was ready for the next time that that job came up, that I was going to be the person in that job. And I was much more articulate about that head of operations. And I'd spent 17 of my 27 years at that time in Microsoft in operations. I, of course, wanted the head of operations job. And I got it that time. So I spent about four years in that. And so I'd done 27 years in Microsoft, never really looked back on the health scare, just kept, kept focused on uh, the work and the impact and, and the opportunity that of making a difference. Um, and at the end of that time, then I decided it was time to leave Microsoft. My mum had passed away. Okay. We'd spent about, she was a year gone. And I just kind of went, you know, I need time out. I need to go and spend time with family, give myself a chance to do whatever it is I want to do, didn't know what that was at the time. And I was on the succession plan for this role, the managing director role for Ireland. Um, but I looked at the role in a very practical way and said, okay, it's part of the job is running a sales function and I'm not a salesperson, that's not in my DNA. Mm -hmm. um, and then I also said, hey, listen, Ireland's in recession back six years ago. It, the last leader of that function, Paul Rellis, had come from operations and finance, and I was operations and finance. And I was going, I really think they need a salesperson to go in and build the business back up again. Um, and so I discounted myself without ever talking to anybody, said, OK, that's not the job for me. I'm making my decision. I'm going to leave. And I handed in my notice um, to leave Microsoft. And within a week, I got a call from our president of Microsoft International, Jean-Philippe Courtois. He was in Latin America and he called me and said, I want, or he sent me a message saying, can we have a call? I'm in Latin America, time zone wise, we'll figure it out over the weekend. Can we, can we chat? So we planned to call on Saturday. He didn't call. Um, and I was going, OK, sure, that's it. I'm done. Mm -hmm. um, and he contacted me and said, listen, I was with a customer. The time zone just ran away with me. Can we have a chat on Sunday? And I was going to an event uh, with my daughter. So I just went, no, actually, i am got something on. Yeah. And he said, well, tell me when suits and we'll chat. And I was being very brave because I'm not normally like that. But I just kind of had made this mind decision I was going he's not going to change my mind so he called me and he said listen what on earth are you doing you know you're on the succession plan for this role we really want you to do that job and at the time I didn't know Paul was moving on to a new role so I, I had no visibility to that mm -hmm. um, and I said to him you know you my logic you need a salesperson for that job I'm not I've done all the psychometric testing over the year I know that sales isn't part of my DNA um, it's country's been in recession, you need somebody that can really drive it out. And he said to me, you know what, Katrina, there's a couple of things. Company's going to go through a massive transformation. So he obviously knew Steve Barmer had handed in his notice. Mm -hmm. We were going to be replacing him with a new CEO. He had line of sight to this change of, for the company and the culture change is going to come. You have a track record at transformational leadership and growing senior leaders in the company. You've done it from manufacturing into operations, into all of the internet of or the the internet boom and bust you've gone through all of that and you've proven that you are a leader that can manage through change so we need somebody who can do that um, and then the other thing he said to me which i thought was the clincher was you know ireland is four percent of western europe's revenue if you screw it up who cares you know and i thought that i, I thought that was a very empowering thing to for him to say yeah he wasn't undermining the the, the entity that is the sales team in Ireland, but he was kind of saying, what are you worried about? You know, it's not going to have an impact on the company. 
um, but hey, you might enjoy it. So I thought about it and went back to him and said, hey, I need some time off. Um, so he said, how much time? Which I thought, again, was another great thing for a leader to say. Mm -hmm. um, so I took three months at the time um, and I went back into that job with a total clear mind of, it was like a new company, new job, new me, go in and approach it. And um, my husband and I had talked about, well, you know, if, if after six months you hate it, you know, all you have to do is leave because you've already made, taken that, because it was huge turmoil for me to say I was going to leave Microsoft. I'd say just the emotional side of yeah. things, when you've been somewhere for such a long time, it becomes a huge part of your identity and there is that emotional connection to the brand and to all that stuff, which shouldn't be there, but it happens yeah. over 27 years. It kind of shapes you and who you are and you kind of, you think that that's who you are and mm -hmm. that you can so connected with the company. So to have made that decision to say I was going to leave was such a big thing. Um, it would come easier after that if I, if I really didn't enjoy what I was going to do. So he said, to, and my husband was great at kind of coaching me into, are you leaving the company or are you leaving 17 years of operations and you feel like you've done everything you can do? Mm -hmm. um, and I went, hmm, don't think I'm giving up on the company just yet. So uh, I have to say this has been the most amazing job I've ever had. Um, I love it. It is probably one of the best jobs in the company. Um, because there are kind of three elements to it. One is running the sales function. And by the way, we've grown revenue 25 to 28% every year for the last five years. So um, I may be a salesperson without yeah. even knowing it. Yeah, for sure. um, we've transformed the team. 60% uh, of all of the employees in the sales subsidiary are brand new in the last 24 months. Um, all the leadership team have changed. So we've been able to, and not all moved out of the company. A lot of them have moved on to bigger jobs. So mm -hmm. being able to coach them into what their next great career move would be with Microsoft. Um, I ha I'm managing director for Ireland, which means I represent all of the footprint that is here, whether it's data center, engineering, inside sales, operations. So the breadth of understanding of the company and being able to be the face of that into the market, working with government, working with industry bodies has been amazing. Um, and then I'm site leader internally. So being able to bring the employees together and to move into our beautiful new campus and uh, see the impact that that's had on really embracing the culture change that we've had has, has been fantastic so it's been a great six years of and do you career. still enjoy it today as much as you did on day one absolutely love it um, because there's so much change going on okay. as uh, the company you see now is not the company five years ago or ten years ago uh, and we're only on that journey we're still beginning to learn and a bit that I really love most is there's so much happening in the Irish market mm -hmm. and so many companies are curious about what's happened with Microsoft. Like yeah. How did you do that culture change for a company with 110,000 employees with a global footprint? Like it's a it's a Harvard business case. Yeah. Um, so people are curious about that because every company in Ireland that's going on that digital journey know that the biggest part of that is the culture change that they're going to have to make. Um, and sharing our experience with them and, and helping them start that journey has, is incredible. And as I said, we're only on the, the starting point of that. Um, there's so much opportunity and so much more impact that I can have and the team can have that it, it really is a, an exciting time to be part of it. Uh, so I was out at your new office in Sandyford, Leopardstown, uh, in that area. And it's a beautiful building, first and foremost. But there also seems to be enough space for the team to grow but also the ambition to grow. Was that a big sort of mental shift for the company to move to the new campus? Yeah, I mean, um, one is we, we put in for 
that uh, expense or that investment, $134 million, um, five years ago, we're actually out of space in the building. So wow, believe it or already. believe it not, we're full. Um, we have another building in Leopardstown just across the way. So we're retrofitting that. We've got another um, investment from the company to retrofit that building to the same quality as the one we have now, which will give us space to grow probably another thousand people into to that building so we've we stayed at a kind of thousand twelve hundred number for years and years and years and over the last kind of 24 months we've grown to 2200 so mm -hmm. it's been a rapid growth um, and that's been large part of that was our inside sales function we have nearly 800 people in that now from 35 different markets across Europe um, but we've also grown in engineering and operations and sales. So it's been right across the business. And part of it is being able to have a campus mm -hmm. so that when our corporate executives come in and they see what connecting one Microsoft means and see how you can light up the culture and the change, um, they want to invest more. So we're seeing more and more groups from the US coming over and going, we want to put another team here. We want to invest in Ireland. And I think it's, it's just an amazing story. That is yeah. great. It's good to see as well that there is sort of the interest in growing the team because it is, although it's 2,200 versus the 55,000 in Seattle, yeah. it's still a vibrant team and they're still contributing a lot. Um, talking of contributing a lot, you also give back into the community quite a bit. Yes. So I, the last time I was out in the new Microsoft building, I was there in the dream space, which is run by an incredible young woman called Amanda. Um, and I was, I think it was transition year students were learning how to use different aspects of technology, whether it is AI and understanding what AI actually is. Why do you open the doors to schools and, um, you know, give your teams time to do stuff like that? Yeah. So um, we know that only 30% of the ICT workforce across all of Europe are women. Um, so we've always had this focus on how do we encourage more, both in Ireland, both male and female, to consider STEM subjects. Mm -hmm. So over the years, uh, we've always done Internet Safety Day or uh, Coder Dojo, we are, are real advocates for. But we saw the campus and building out the campus that we had a real opportunity to build a space that we could bring uh, students into to experience technology and we called it dream space because it's allowing them to dream about the future and to think about how do they build the skills around collaboration, problem solving, critical thinking to help them dream about how technology is going to impact them and we've done a really interesting thing I think is we haven't set it up as a coding a place to code. Mm -hmm. We set it up so that we can show students how technology is going to be used in sport, in design, in art, in music. Um, so it depends on where they're coming from and what they think their career is going to be, but educating them that technology is going to be part of that and therefore they should be embracing that technology. So we focus on two cohorts. One is primary school children, mm -hmm. uh, fifth and sixth class, because we find at 11 years of age a lot more uh, girls are interested in technology. So we're trying to capture them at that age and give them an experience that will open their minds to the potential of technology. And then we go back again at transition year, as you say, to meet the students where they're at as they're starting to think about their college choices and what types of career they're going to have. We want to expose them to uh, the technology and show them how that's going to change the world and, and help them consider that those STEM subjects are important. And it's all about trying to pipeline in the early stages students into uh, 
technology like industries and mm. um, we also have another space in the building uh, an education suite where we're now bringing teachers in because you can capture the minds of the, of the students but if the teachers aren't able to use technology in the classroom and just make it part of the curriculum rather than it being a subject or a you go to the computer room to do that we want to have it to be pervasive in the in in the classroom so we've created that space and then out in dcu in st patrick's college we have a minecraft room which is helping all of the students that are coming out to become teachers learn how to code and how to use technology in the classroom so we're a real commitment to focusing at the grassroots of how do we get um more and more people interested in STEM subjects and therefore ultimately pipelining talent for the future for the technology industry. So from a business point of view, is this kind of ticking a CSR box or is it, you know, as you say, trying to line up the next wave of engineers yeah. or whatever? No, for us it's not about the, the CSR box. We do lots of charitable uh, work with Enable Ireland on accessibility, with Concern, with other uh, charitable organisations, Special Olympics. But this is more about how do we shift the dial on pipelining talent for the future and getting people excited about what it would be, be like to be in the tech industry. And part of that is trying to do role modeling. So we had a girls in ICT day last week where we had 80 students. And again, last year we did the same thing and we brought in role models for them to meet. So whether I went and spoke to them, we had other people within Microsoft, but we've also had, um, younger people who've started their own business who are only in their teens um, demonstrating and showing to the students what what they did and what and, and getting them excited to see somebody who's a closer age peer to them yeah. uh, and what the potential is um, for them and we find that 46 percent of girls who have a role model um, are more likely to uh, um, take stem subjects in their university years and so does the term role model sit easily on your shoulders? Yeah, it does now. I mean, I have to say um, a number of years ago, I was asked to kind of head up the diversity and inclusion initiative for Microsoft in, in Ireland. And at that stage, I was a little reluctant to do it because I kind of felt it was, oh, you're the token woman being asked to go up as the poster child. And it didn't feel good for me and I hesitated. But actually, the more I thought it through, the more important it is for people to see role models. And um, I look at my background and, and my steps through my career, and it's, it's not standard, it's different. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you have to tell that story. So for students who are not 100% academic and are really clear on what their path is, showing them somebody who didn't go to university, who didn't take the normal path and still has had a very successful career, I think is, is a good thing to do. So it's, it's better now than it did before. Well, it is an awesome story. I'm delighted you came in to share it with us. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you.